Welcome to the Restoration Living Podcast with our host, military chaplain and spiritual care director, James Johnson. With so many voices in this world fighting for our attention, it's easy to believe that we aren't good enough, that our past will always haunt us, and that we will never measure up. But the voice of God is telling us that we can live a life of restoration in Him. Our Heavenly Father doesn't want us to let our past decisions determine our present peace. Instead, He wants us to find that life of restoration in Him. So grab your Bibles and join us as we dig into God's Word to discover timeless truths and proper application for our lives today. Welcome back to our time together as we've been going through this book study of the book of Revelation of the Apocalypse of St. John, the literally the unveiling, the revealing of what was going to happen to the Israelites, the church, and the Roman Empire during the time of John. And if you've been going through this with us, we, in our last episode, have really been digging in the last couple of sessions together, have really been digging into what the actual meaning of this book was. As you you know, saw the in the beginning parts when we were talking about the letters to the churches, there was some symbolism, there was some apocalyptic imagery, but by and large, that was pretty understandable and pretty straightforward. But as we began to look at the next section that we've been in, the three sets of seven, we talked about how there was a ping pong between what was going on in heaven and what was going on on earth, that each of these three sets of seven are going to show how God removed the Mosaic Covenant's promises and replaced it with the promises of the New Covenant. And we reviewed before a couple of episodes ago how the Mosaic Covenant, the the covenant God made, what we call the Old Covenant sometimes, brought three specific things to the nation of Israel. It brought first the promised land, the land that was promised through Abraham uh, and that eventually became taken uh, by Joshua and, and the armies of Israel as they crossed the Jordan into the promised land and took all of that territory uh, for the nation of Israel. That The first promise of the Mosaic Covenant is the land. The second promise that the Mosaic Covenant gives to the nation of Israel is unity as a people. God promises them that if they will stay faithful to his covenant, and follow the, the rules and the law of Moses, that he would keep them unified as a single nation, that they would not be um, taken captive or defeated or destroyed by any other nation. And the third thing he promises them is the sacrificial system, the system that allows them to replace the the death that they deserved with the sacrifice of an animal or a grain offering or a a wine offering, something like that, that a system of atonement to atone for their sins. And God promises them that as long as they are faithful to the terms of the covenant, it's a conditional covenant. If they're faithful to keep those, those rules and regulations, then God will give them those three things. If on the other hand, they do not keep the rules and regulations, God promised to take those three things. And what we see is throughout history, 
specifically the history of Israel, they were faithful not to keep them, but to disobey those rules within the law of Moses. And so God's patience finally wears thin, and he replaces the old covenant with the new covenant, a better covenant. And we talked about how, you know, the scriptures told us that the old covenant in numerous places has been replaced, right? The old covenant has been replaced with the new covenant, that the new covenant is better, and the old covenant is now obsolete. And this portion of the book of Revelation, these three sets of seven, are connected to God replacing the old covenant with the new covenant. And we discussed how the scroll that God on his throne held in his right hand was the land deed of Israel. It had writing on the inside and the outside and had seven seals. And how Jesus was the only one who had the same authority as God the Father to open those seals, to open the land deed of Israel for the promised land. And as we saw in the last time together, our last episode, we looked at the first four seals. The first four seals brought about what we call the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And the first horse was the white horse and that had a king on it with a bow with no arrows that won many victories. And we said that represented Nero. Nero was the emperor at the time that John was receiving this revelation, this revelation of what was going on in history and how Nero brought persecution not only on the Christians, but also on the Jews. Up until that point, the Jewish people had received favor and protection from Rome. But under Nero, that would change. And we talked about how Nero was the, the first seal, the first rider, the white horse, and its rider was Nero. The second seal opened and brought a rider on a red horse, and that, that rider was given a sword to wage war. And we talked about how red is the color of the Roman military and how the Jewish people revolted against Rome because Nero was was increasing by large amounts, by obscene amounts, the amount of taxes they had to pay. And they rebelled and revolted against Rome because they refused to pay those taxes. And so Nero sends the general Titus, who would one day become emperor, to lead a siege against Jerusalem. And after that siege was over, he in 70 AD completely destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. And so this red horse with its rider was given a sword to wage war. And we talked about how these things are following, you know, one after the other sequentially in time. The third seal brought the third horse, which was the black horse. And this was the idea of, of famine. And, and the, during the siege that Titus laid on Jerusalem, that during the months of the siege, we talked about how it happened during a festival time when there would have been almost, you know, some historians say up to a million people would have been in the city of Jerusalem when it was under siege. And during that time, you know, uh, it would be a, a massive, massive, um, you know, very quick calamity and one of the things that we saw with th that horse was that it was carrying the rider was carrying a set of scales and during that time um, they um, would have seen the price of goods go up dramatically because they would not be able to resupply from 70 AD 
no, excuse me, from April of 70 AD to August of 70 AD. So about five months that siege lasted. And during those five months, there would be no way to get fresh supplies into the city of Jerusalem and inflation would have gone up as people began to starve and they began to use up their supplies. One of the things that we see anytime there's a siege to a city is there's three basic tactics. Tactic number one, is negotiate and that's usually what we, people try to do so there's no bloodshed nobody dies they try to negotiate a surrender if there's no surrender the second tactic that the military will often use is a direct assault to just use their military might to take over and capture the city quickly but the most common way to do it if, if negotiations fail is the surrounding army just sits there and there's a waiting game and the people in the city try to outlast the military because military um, you know, armies consume supplies as well. And soldiers have to be fed. And the people in the city try to outlast the army that surrounds them with who's got the most supplies, who can last the longest. Well, in this situation, it was obviously the Roman Empire. The Roman military could be continually resupplied from outside sources and Jerusalem could not. And during that five month period, inflation went up so bad that it met the, the, the prediction that an entire day's pay would be spent on one loaf of bread. And we talked about how crazy it would be that in today's day, in you know, today's wages, that would be like spending $80 for one loaf of bread. And so we also looked at the fourth seal, which was the fourth horseman of the apocalypse. The fourth rider was on a pale horse, a pale green horse, and that death and the grave were those riders. And we saw that as a result of the siege, that people died from the military battle. They also died of starvation and sickness, that all of the people who had traveled in for that festival, those hundreds of thousands of people would have brought sicknesses with them. Smallpox was raging throughout the Roman Empire at that time, and there's tons of evidence that people during that time died of smallpox. Worse than that, when people tried to flee from the city, when they would escape, they were trying to say, well, if we're going to die in the city, we might as well run and ask for mercy from the Romans, and the Romans would not give them. According to the historians, over 100,000 people tried to escape or, and were killed by the Roman military, that they took no prisoners. They killed and slaughtered everyone. And um, thousands eventually after um, the original slaughtering were eventually taken as prisoners. But the beginning of 100,000 people, the historians you know, can see, died at the hands of the military. And so during this time, we see that these four horses, right, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as they're called, these first four seals, show how the judgment of God and how God was going to remove the promised land from the nation of Israel. That even though they were not autonomous, they did not rule and reign themselves up until this point, Rome largely left them alone. As long as they paid their taxes, they could live how they wanted. But after this rebellion, Rome would subjugate the Jewish people in a massive way. They destroyed their capital city and destroyed the temple. And all three parts of the Mosaic Covenant were taken away through this one action of the siege of Jerusalem from the Jewish revolt. There would no longer be a temple. Ever since the, the, the 70 AD, there's never been a Jewish temple on the Temple Mount. It was rebuilt as an Islamic mosque. The Al-Aqsa Mosque is on the Temple Mount right now. 
It's a Muslim holy, you know, holy site that Jews are not allowed to even pray at the one wall that's left, the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall. They legally cannot even pray at that site because it's now under the regulation of an Islamic group. And so what we see is God uses these terrible events to bring judgment on Israel because Israel refused to receive the Messiah. That when Jesus came as their Messiah, and, and he said that, Jesus said, you know, how many times have I wanted to gather you together, you know, Jerusalem, like a mother hen gathers their chicks. And he predicted this catastrophic destruction that Jesus actually wept over Jerusalem because he knew what was going to happen. So that's where we left off that the, the siege of Jerusalem brought all of these things, the first four seals, the white horse, the red horse, the black horse, and the pale horse, all represented Nero, the destruction of the military, the Roman military on Jerusalem and Israel, the siege of Jerusalem with the black horse and the, and the inflation that happened and the sickness that happened, and then of course, the pale horse that brought death. Right, pale green horse that brought you know plague and suffering and sickness and death and that's where we left off so let's pick up where we left off in revelation chapter 6 starting with verse 9 we'll move to the fifth seal of the seven seals verse 9 says when the lamb broke the fifth seal i saw under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful to their testimony. They shouted to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus who were to be martyred, had joined them. Now, this fifth seal is different because the first four gave very clear indications of what was going on on earth to match up with what was going on in heaven. But this one is different and there's no earthly, you know, action other than the continual martyring of Christians. Even though Jerusalem would be destroyed in 70 AD, the Roman Empire did not stop martyring Christians. And it was like we talked about before, it was not a continual persecution, this time of tribulation as it's referred to. It was not all at one time. It came in waves and different cities, different groups, different areas would um, receive this persecution. But it, it speaks to the fact that, that even after Nero died, Christianity would not become tolerated until centuries later under Emperor Constantine. It would continue to be, you know, a, a, a persecution of Christians over and over and over again. These waves of persecution and, and martyrdom would happen and that when Christians would rise up, the word martyr means testimony. You know, a, a person that would be a witness in a court case was known as a martyr. And because of the witness, the testimony that these Christians gave to their faith, that's why martyrs were, are now referred to as people who die for their religious beliefs, right? That they are martyred for their cause. And so all of these people are crying out to God, the souls that are under the altar, right? That they are crying out. These are the souls of people who were killed for their faith and asking for God to, to bring justice to them. And instead, a white robe was given to each of them. And we talked about this before, but the white robe is an important symbol in this book and in other apocalyptic passages in the Bible that it represents the purity 
that white robes were given to people to symbolize how they had been purified by God. That's why even today, during uh, celebrations like the Jewish Passover, that, that people will wear white clothes to the Passover cedar to symbolize how they've been purified by God. And so God gives um, to these people, to these martyrs, a white robe and tells them to rest a little longer. And so as we go through this, we recognize that as history unfolds, the church is still being persecuted, even after Nero's death, even after this time, this, this time of, of, of calamity on Israel is over. It still falls on the Christian church. So let's keep going. That's the fifth seal, the sixth seal. Verse 12, I watched as the Lamb broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun became as dark as black cloth, and the moon became red as blood. Then the stars of the sky fell to the earth like green figs falling from a tree shaken by a strong wind. The sky was rolled up like a scroll, and all of the mountains and islands were moved from their places. Now, this is apocalyptic imagery at its finest. This is symbolism. We're tempted to, as we read this, try and make this literal, to say that when this earthquake happens, it's going to be so great that stars are going to fall to the earth like green figs, and that the, the, the sky is going to literally roll up like a scroll. That's not what's happening here. I mean, if even one star hit the earth, the earth would be destroyed, okay? Much less so many falling on the on the earth like figs, you know, from a tree. This would be many stars. If that happened, the whole earth would be destroyed. That's not what's happening here. This is a symbolic representation of apocalyptic imagery. This is not a literal earthquake. It's not literally stars falling from the sky. It's not literally seeing mountains and islands being moved. It's symbolism. It's a representation. And so what we see that this is a continual type of apocalyptic imagery that's used in other apocalyptic passages. Look at some of these verses. Uh, Joel chapter 2 verse 10 says, The earth quakes as they advance and the heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark and the stars no longer shine. Or further on in, in Joel chapter 2 and verse 30, it says this, 30 and 31 say, And I will cease excuse me, I, I will cause wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon will turn blood red before that great and terrible day of the Lord arrives. Amos chapter 8 verse 9 says, In that day, says the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth while it's still day. Ezekiel 32 verses 7 and 8 Say, when I blot you out, I will veil the heavens and darken the stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give you its light. I will darken the bright stars overhead and cover your land in darkness. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. Isaiah 13, verses 9 and 10. For you see, the day of the Lord is coming, the terrible day of his fury and fierce anger. The land will be made desolate, and all the sinners destroyed with it. The heavens will be black above them. The stars will give no night. The star, the sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will provide no light. One more passage just to give you an example. Isaiah 34, verse 4 says, The heavens will melt away and disappear like a rolled-up scroll. The stars will fall from the sky like withered leaves from a grapevine or shriveled figs from a fig tree. Do you see the, the, the references that John is making in this passage? John is, is connecting, and even if this is a new thing that he's actually literally being told and he's not using this as a veiled message, at least this is a connection 
to other apocalyptic passages that show us it's not literal. Because when the day of the Lord happened for Isaiah, the sky didn't literally roll up as a scroll. The stars didn't literally fall to the earth or the earth wouldn't even exist now. And so what we see is this is obviously figurative language. This refers to the same judgment that God put on the lands before he's bringing to the lands again. God is going to bring judgment on Israel and the Roman Empire because Rome persecuted the Christians. Israel was judged for its unfaithfulness to the covenant and God kept his promise to take those three things from them. When Israel was was taken, you know, captive again by Rome and they were, you know, the siege of Jerusalem happened, God took away all three of those things. He took away the land, he took away their unity as a people, and he took away the sacrificial system when the temple was destroyed. But this is a different judgment. This is the judgment on the Roman Empire. This is the day of the Lord that is coming. And so what we have to recognize is there have been numerous days of the Lord that the phrase day of the Lord is just a phrase that refers to a day of God's judgment on a nation that has defied him. And there are numerous ones. There was a day of the Lord in all of these passages in Joel and Isaiah and Ezekiel. And so what we see is that there are numerous symbols that God uses, this apocalyptic imagery, this fantastic imagery to represent what's going to happen in an earthly reality. And so what is the imagery of the symbolism of the heavens being shaken? Well, whenever we see the images of earthly, or excuse me, heavenly bodies being moved, like stars and the sun and the moon, this refers to the the authority that's going on on the earth. That whenever these move, it refers to the authorities being on the earth being moved. It's a common reference because they believed at the time when a great ruler died, they became a star. That when pharaohs or emperors or kings died, they became part of the heavens, and that's where they lived. And so this idea of the heavens being shaken meant that the authorities on the earth were being shaken as well. And so what we see during this time period is after the the, the siege of Jerusalem and the death of Nero, we see a lot of turmoil and tumult in and un, and unsta- you know, instability in the Roman Empire that God allows their stability to be shaken. That up until this point, as you look at the history of the different emperors, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero, they all brought stability to the empire. But after Nero, there's a very you know, quick amount of time. It's known as the year of the four emperors, that each emperor after Nero, the next four emperors would go one after the other, that that none of them would reign for more than a year. Some of them only months, you know, Galba, um, you know, reigned for almost a year, but Otho, Aulus, Vitellius, and, uh, you know, these four, and then, then you know, after that, were uh, only able to rule for short amounts of time. Vespasian rules for a decade, but up until then, that one year had four emperors. Nero goes, you know, when he dies, and there's Galba, Otho, Aulius Vitalis, and then Vespasian, one right after the other, until Vespasian rules for a decade. And so, as this happens, as they go through this time, 
the whole nation of the Roman Empire is is shaken. There's civil wars going on. There are military um, upheavals where the, the the leaders in the armies are trying to rise up as rulers, and and there's you know martial law in certain areas, and it's just a lot of the peace that had existed for so long was gone. And what we see is that God is working through history to orchestrate what he wants to see happen in the world and in order to bring the, 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 the world under his authority and to bring redemption to not just the nation of Israel, but to the whole world. And some, you know, while we see that this persecution was not continual and constant, it was something that continued to happen, that, that Christianity continued to be outlawed and more and more martyrs were having their lives taken for their refusal to deny Jesus. And the land was going to have to be changed into something new. All right, we've got some more time in this session. Let's keep going. Verse 15, then everyone, the kings of the earth, the rulers, the generals, the wealthy, the powerful, and every slave and free person all hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains. And they cried to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, who is able to survive? And so what we see in all of this is this is once again imagery. This is symbolism. This is saying that that during this day of the Lord, this judgment on Rome that's taking place is so bad that the people are, are basically hiding, trying to find peace, that the world is so tumultuous and there's no stability. There's no stability in the government. There's no stability in the military. There's no stability in commerce and trade. There's plagues and sicknesses everywhere. And so the day of the Lord that Jesus predicted in the all of that discourse is taking place at this point. And he told that he told his followers how terrible it will be for pregnant people in those days who have to flee from Jerusalem, who have to find safety in the mountains, right? Because of how terrible that day of the Lord, in a matter of weeks, position and wealth meant nothing in Israel to these people. All of Israel was made the same. They no longer had their position, their titles, or their wealth. It was all taken, and they had to run into hiding. And so as we go through this, we're seeing as these seals are being undone, the land is being taken from Israel and the very nation of Israel, along with the rest of the Roman Empire, are being upset. All right, that finishes chapter six. Let's see if we can finish. We've got a few more minutes left. Let's see what we can cover of Revelation chapter seven. It says, Then I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds, so they did not blow on the earth or the sea or even on any tree. And I saw another angel coming up from the east, carrying the seal of the living God. And he shouted to those four angels who had been given power to harm the land and sea, Wait, don't harm the land or the sea or land or the sea or the trees until we have placed the seal of God on the foreheads of his servants. Now, what we're going to see here is a, 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 a image that has been popularized in culture. There's going to be a mark on the followers of Jesus, the believers, and a mark on those who follow the beast, who follow the Roman Empire. And it's going to be a visible mark. Now, one of the things that people have hypothesized as to what the seal could mean for the Christians 
but what we see is this is a throwback once again to the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel talks about how God would place his mark on his followers. And some people have said, oh, these are the phylacteries that the Jewish people wore, the, these, these prayer boxes they would tie on their foreheads or wrap around their wrists to when they prayed to symbolize how they wanted God's word to be in their mind and through their actions, that their thoughts and their actions would all be centered around God. But what we see is that this is a mark that people would know about the way people think and act, that they are followers of Jesus. This is the antithesis of the mark of the beast that we will see later by the way people lived in the Roman Empire. Now what we're going to see is that the, the mark of the beast is, is actually a literal mark we're going to talk because it's something that was required to buy groceries and go into the marketplace but this is a connection to the um the ceiling from the book of ezekiel that god talk, he talks about and we'll look more at this in our next section but as we get ready to close this time we're going to begin to see something very vital to the, um, the, to the separation of God's people and the people of, of the world. That there's a stark contrast between how Christians live and how the pagans lived. That as we go through this, and, and we're going to talk more about the 144,000 in our next section, but as we close this session, this episode together, I want you to, to close with this reminder that as God brought this judgment on Rome and on Israel, the church was preserved. And that's why Jesus warned his followers, get out. When you see the signs coming, get out. Because you don't want to be caught up in Jerusalem when this happens. And as the judgment echoes out, we're going to see ripple effects go through the entire empire. Christians were going to have to choose what they stood for, who they lived for. It would be a mark on them, on their lives. And that just as there was a mark on God's people during the time, the judgment that Ezekiel talked about, there's a mark on the lives of Christians. Now, this is a good application point as we get ready to close our time together. Yes, this happened thousands, almost 2,000 years ago now. But even today, there should be a mark on us on our lives, on the way we live, on the way we treat each other, on the way we, we, what we stand for, what our core values are, what our unshakable, uncompromising values of our life are. That we should be known as people that are set apart and different, not because we want to go hide in holy huddles and, and live completely separate from the rest of the world, that we're going to be the, the able to um, understand what's going on in the world with open eyes and recognizing that we live separate from everyone else. So as we close this time, I want to ask you if people saw you, would they, would they, would your life look like you were marked by God? And if not, man, Lord, change our hearts and change our lives. So as we, until we come back next time, I just want to leave you with that thought and we will make sure that we come back to this in our next episode. Be blessed. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We pray that God uses it to inform your mind, improve your life, and ignite your heart with a renewed passion to impact others for the kingdom of God. 
And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you can continue along with us on this journey of restoration living.